This is Wanda Swan. This is Shannon Palma. And you're listening to Once Upon a Patriarchy. Yay! Yay! So, we are well into season two, Shannon. I can't believe it. We made it. Finally! (laughs) And today's episode is... Wow. Yes. I, I, I don't have words. Yeah. I don't have words. Yeah. So... Um, y'all just prepare if you're in your car, if you are cleaning your house, if you are just vegging out, be prepared to enjoy the gift that is today's episode. Mm. Mm. (laughs) I'm so excited for you. So as usual, per huge, as I like to say, we have our resident expert, here on Fairy Tale Folklore, Dr. Shannon Boma, who will give us um, a little bit of backstory and history into today's feature story, which is what is it, Shannon? Aladdin. Aladdin. Yes. And so we've decided to do something a little bit different today, y'all, in celebration of a couple things. One, us trying to be fancy. And us passing the mic and ensuring that narratives are spoken by people who've lived those experiences. We have three special guests today who will basically take over the show. Yeah. Make it their own thing. We're going to be coming in and out maybe with some little bit of commentary. But we are going to let these three special featured co-hosts take over today's episode of Aladdin. So, Shannon, why don't you get into the bio? Rula Abisamra is a professional busybody and amateur baker in Atlanta. The eldest daughter of Lebanese immigrants who settled in New Orleans, Rula is passionate about the resistance and resilience of Southern people of color. Rula has worked for reproductive health, rights, and justice for the last 15 years, currently as a community organizer, trainer, policy researcher, and facilitator. Rula is a proud board member of Access Reproductive Care Southeast, Georgia's only abortion fund. Rula's interests include competitive spelling and other people's babies. Hi, this is Rula. Zunera has more than a decade of experience working in health promotion, disease prevention, and community wellness. As a public health professional, she has worked in a variety of divisions and roles at the local, state, and federal levels. She loves chocolate, is owned by several cats, and spends most of her free time napping. Hi, this is Zunera. Dr. Reem Beluni is a historian of the Middle East focusing on Syrian diaspora and migration. She's also an assistant professor at Agnes Scott College. Hi, this is Reem. Welcome. We had been talking to Rula about doing this episode, and uh, it had been her idea to bring in multiple voices. And as soon as she said it, we were like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Why haven't we thought of this before? This is brilliant. Right. And it totally could have been an amazing thing for us to do earlier. Yeah. uh, Within some previous episodes. One of the things that we really enjoyed about the Mulan story with Chesha was the fact that she, when asked about how would she retell this story, it really set set in motion for us this idea of 
this isn't my story to tell. Yeah. That was a moment yeah. where it's, it hit both Shannon and myself like. Oh, crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is, we got to think about this. Teach me. Mm-hmm. Tell me. Mm-hmm. Learn me. Mm. And we are one who would never say that we are above learning. Yeah. We are above being taught. And that was such a perfect answer. Yeah, it really was. And so we have decided to both look at the ways in which we revisit Mulan in the future, because we will, mm-hmm. um, but also bring that energy into other narratives yeah. that we will also be addressing through this podcast, which is why today you're going to have three amazing featured co-hosts. So before we jump into our featured co-host today, um, Shannon is going to do her thing that she does so well. So Shannon, why don't you start us off with backstory of Aladdin? Alrighty then. So Aladdin, and there, there's some there's some twists and turns to this. Well, of course there are. Shana. Always some twists. Aladdin originates in a collection known as Elf Leila Walela, which translates as One Thousand and One Nights, and is a folktale collection of mostly Middle Eastern and Indian stories compiled in Arabic. The stories have their roots in Arab, Persian, Indian, Greek, Jewish. Uh, Turkish folklore, it's its really a lot within a, a fairly broad geographic region. The first reference to the manuscript is in the 9th century. Then uh, there you get a few more in the 10th century. One of the things that's kind of funny is that originally the number of stories was nowhere near a thousand. That was, <laughs> was in the 200s, but stories continued to be added over time. And uh, now you actually do have some collections where they they were trying for a thousand. The most famous stories in the West, Aladdin's Wonderful Lamp, Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, and the Seven Voyages of Sinbad the Sailor weren't added until the first European translations in the early 1700s. So their authenticity as folklore has been contested. Uh, Frenchman Antoine Galland published the first European translation, and his collection is where the three stories I just named first appear in print. Hmm. So Galant claimed he'd heard Aladdin directly from a Syrian storyteller, uh, Hanna Diab, uh, who was from Aleppo. But the story didn't appear in any other extant collections, so some were questioning whether just Galant had just made it up, Mm -hmm. right? Like, he just made this up. Right. Well, Diab's travel memoir was discovered in 1993 in the Vatican's library. 1993? 1993. And it confirmed that he had been to France and he had told Galan the story. Wow. Yeah. So they both mention it, one in the travel memoir and one in the diary, but the only written account of the story mm-hmm. is in Galan's work. Well, my granny always said two people ain't going to tell the same lie, so. I know, right? There you go. So the um, speculation now, because there isn't another written version of Diab's account, is whether there were parts of the story that, whether the story was based on his life. That's actually a possibility because Hmm. there's language in Galan's story that is very, very similar to the language in Diab's memoir where he's talking about his first experience coming to Versailles. 
Oh, wow. So he used some of the same uh, descriptive language is used in the story as mm-hmm. in his travel memoir. And so that, I mean, it lends credence to the account that, yes, this was his story. And right. also that there are elements of Diab's life that could have um, filtered in. So it's really interesting. That's awesome. So Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp, which is the actual story, it's set in China among a Muslim people. And this is what's Excuse really, what? really interesting. Yeah. So it gets a little, it gets contested China? here. Yeah. Okay. China. The only place where it's clear that it's in China is the very first line where it says it's set in China. The bit about China is interesting, too, because um, during the 19th century, when Europe was kind of obsessed with China, they like depicted Aladdin as having been set in China. But there's no other indication aside from the beginning where they're like China, a land far away, mm. that it's anything but an Arabian tale. Um, so... That's interesting. (laughs) Well, there you go. Everything else (laughs) in the story is really clearly from a Muslim culture. Yeah, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. So it's, here's the debate. Like, a lot of people are like, the China piece was a Western imposition on the story. Mm. Like, that was just because of the who the audience was for Galan's tale. That sounds like us, though. It does. It totally sounds like us. <laughs> oh, so, so trash. that is very, very likely. <laughs> the other thing, though, and the piece that does complicate it a little, and there's also a counter to this argument, okay. is that there were Muslim people in what is now China. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of different cultures in what is now China. Mm-hmm. And so actually some of that language, some of some of the same customs could have been also right. shared by peoples who lived in China. However, how would a young Syrian guy who was, you know, traveling to France right. necessarily know what had been going on in China? You know, like it's right. Would the storytellers telling this story have known? It's like the difference between possible and probable. Exactly. Right. So it's possible that it actually was about China. It is probable that the China <laughs> piece is a later addition. Right. So in the story, Aladdin is a punk kid. I mean, he's he's a total jerk who disappoints his father and doesn't do much to help his mother after she's widowed. He's just always running around being a scapegrace. Really? Yeah. So a magician arrives from the Maghreb, which is basically northwest Africa, mm-hmm. and pretends to be Aladdin's long-lost uncle in order to trick Aladdin, surprise, surprise, into entering a magical booby-trapped cave to <laughs> retrieve a magical lamp. Sound familiar? <laughs> Boom. Uh <laughs> The magician double crosses Aladdin and the boy ends up trapped in the cave, right? So Did he get the lamp back like in the cartoon? Yeah, he does. What happens basically is that the magician had given him an enchanted ring to help in the cave, and that ring ends up having its own genie in it. And that ring, like he's rubbing his hands together because he's he's like wringing his hands in despair, and the ring genie appears, and the ring genie helps him escape. Wait a minute. Is there a ring genie and a lamp genie? There are two genies. What? Spoiler. (laughs) What? There are multiple genies. So why? (laughs) Why? Because there are no magic carpets. Because magic carpets don't come along until way later, possibly even not until the Disney version. So we needed two genies. You had to have two genies. Because we had to have two magical elements. Yes. Where's the monkey? Uh, there is no monkey, but there is... Oh, wait. Wait for it, because I got a Naboo story coming up. Uh, yeah. The origins of Naboo are later. Okay, here we go. Baghdad. 
Here we go. What? Right? So the genie from the Enchanted Ring helps him escape, and then Aladdin gets home, and his mother goes to clean the lamp, because it's like the only thing he's got left other than the Enchanted Ring. But the lamp, an even more powerful genie, who is bound to do the bidding of anyone holding the lamp. Oh, wow. It's not bound to three wishes. Wow. It's anyone holding the lamp. Okay. So this genie makes Aladdin rich and powerful and enables him to foil the princess's marriage to the vizier's son. Wait a minute. What did it do for his mama? I mean, I assume she's around. It's been a long time since I read the story, so I don't really remember what happens to his mom. She's not really featured in, I mean, she might be But she held details, the lamp. Like, she, she didn't get like a... And she's the one who actually released the genie. She didn't get a cake of... A new car, some new shutters, winterizing her house. Like, does she give the lamp to Aladdin, or does she? Oh, I would never. I gotta go back and check that. I would never, especially if he ain't, if he wasn't about nothing to begin with. If he was a headache, yeah, he's he's a total disappointment. His father dies of disappointment in him. No, he shan't have it. No, he shan't. Yeah. No, he shan't. No. His mother has to sell their <laughs> shop. I'm sorry. He died of disappointment. <laughs> His mother has to sell the shop because she can't, because the son, Aladdin won't do anything to help her keep it. So she has to sell it, and then she makes a rough living spinning cotton. No. And he out here living a high life with the magic he's of He's out Jimmy. hanging with this. He's out hanging with the street rats. Wouldn't be my like, mama. He's not street rat. He's hanging with the street rat while his mother works himself to, herself to the bone. No, could not be my mother. No, it's it's very tragic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm interrupting. I just Everyone can't believe fine. it. It's a terrible, terrible tragedy. It's, it's such terrible. a terrible story. It's so wrong. It's so terrible. This mm. Disney's trash. I well, this is know. actually, this is, again, this but is, I but this is the Frenchman. So, Genie makes Aladdin rich and powerful, enables him to, you know, get the princess, like the princess was supposed to marry the vizier's son, but the genie helps Aladdin to marry her himself. And so, the sorcerer then, the magician, he discovers what's happened after Aladdin, like, has the genie build him this magnificent castle that's even bigger than the sultan. Because, see, he can't do nothing low-key. No. This is how you get caught. Stop doing stuff high-key. Do stuff low-key. If you get if you get a plug that allows you to live a little comfortably, don't go out there and just be completely crazy with yourself. Just, like, make sure your mama doesn't have to be working like that. Right. And get a nice house. Just turn your flex down. Just, yeah. like, flex low. Yeah. Don't flex high. There's an evil magician after you. And technically, you stole his stuff that he asked you to steal for him in the first... Like, okay, I'm sorry. Like, I'm saying. Let's and go for it. two genies. <laughs> Don't two. be... So you Why greedy. You, you greedy. You got two genies. You so greedy. Yeah, and there's no mention of freeing these genies, by the way. Petty. So uh, the magician comes and he tricks the princess into giving him the lamp. It's like a, a new lamps for old kind of switch out. like. <laughs> and then he steals Aladdin's palace and everything in it. And he whisks it away to the Maharib. That's a dumb idea, though. Like, new lamp for old? Like, you falling for that? I know. Okay. Well, keep in mind, princesses don't get out a lot. And maybe new lamps for old seemed like a really hell of a good time. <laughs> 
Plus, she's married to a guy who, like, didn't treat his mama right and right. Who foiled her marriage to someone else and won True. her with magic. So maybe that's going well. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. You know, I mean, maybe until after the new lamps are old and seeing the evil magician, she's like, I could do better. And then she sees the evil magician and she's like, all right, I'm just going to take what I got. <laughs> Sticking with the old lamp. Yeah, so this is, like, a sad story, but it's also, like, a story of, it's apathetic. (laughs) (laughs) It's just apathy. Apathy as far as the eye can be. (laughs) It's not wrong. Aladdin does nothing to change his circumstance until he has a magical servant. So after the magician's stolen away the palace and all of that, uh, Aladdin still has the enchanted ring, so he still has his lesser genie. Right. And his lesser genie, genie number two, helps him get to the to to where everything is now. And, and once Aladdin shows up at the palace, then the princess is like, "Old lamp, yes!" And she um she helps Aladdin recover the lamp. She's like, "Bird in the hand, I choose you, apathetics." <laughs> apathetic kind of not too great trash husband you're better than the evil magician so so wait she went with the house she went with the house, <laughs> she, went with the house. She, she was stolen with the house no she went with the house dang man like this is the... <laughs> wait i'm like how is she there she went with the house she went with the house so Aladdin went with the enchanted ring, and Princess B helps Aladdin to recover the lamp because she's like, yeah, this didn't work out. New lamps for old did not work out the way that I thought it would. And then, you know, Aladdin, they, they slay the magician and return the palace to their home. But then the magician has a brother who attacks next. What? Yeah, by disguising himself as an elderly woman healer and getting the princess to invite him in. And the princess is like, yeah, stay in my house in case people get hurt. Yo. Which makes me really wonder about her marriage. I'm pretty sure Aladdin is tired yeah. of her. Well, there's that too. Yeah. You know, like, I would be if I am someone who only got rich and wealthy by robbing my mama of the lamp that could have gave her a better life. <laughs> <laughs> And then I look up and my house gone. <laughs> and I have to fight to get my own house back. And then I have to, I come home one day and we got a, a old lady at the house. Like, this isn't, like, I would be like, yo, yo. What's going on here? Yeah, we need to, like, yo, let's talk about some ground rules here. Yeah. Well, the genie the lamp, who's still enslaved. Right, because... Right? Of course. Yeah. Uh, wins Aladdin, then Aladdin slays the brother too, kills the brother too, and then everyone lives happily ever after, supposedly, and eventually Aladdin becomes the sultan. Yeah, this is horrible. This is pretty horrible. I mean, it's it's par for the course. Yeah. With, I do, I think you're right, there is a little bit, there's more apathy, <laughs> like, as a general rule. Yeah. There's more like, okay, yeah. I mean, he does go get the house back. Yeah. Of course, but he went for the house, not necessarily the princess. Yeah, and it's the princess who distracts the vizier. <laughs> or no, it's the princess who distracts the magician. She uses her womanly wiles. Her womanly wiles. What's that? I'm going to give you a wily look. 
Mm. Is that my womanly wiles? Yes. Oh, yeah. Good uh, job. See, I just demonstrated you can't see. Good job. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. It felt wildly Good. and womanly. And womanly. So, mm-hmm. Okay. So, so she did that. Okay. Yeah. Did she just do that? Because I, mean, I read a lot into that. And so. Maybe she did more than that. Okay. It's okay. possible. It's I'm possible. not going to demonstrate all of that. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> So Disney uh, did a couple of things differently even than that, right? So they changed the setting from may or may not be China mm-hmm. to a fictional Arab city known as Agrabah. And originally it was actually going to be Baghdad, but the first Gulf War broke out mm-hmm. and there was mm-hmm. war. And mm-hmm. at that point they were like, we can't set this in Baghdad. Right. We can't set this in Baghdad. So the film is also it's based a little bit more on the 1940 film, The Thief of Baghdad, than on hmm. the original story story really yeah so that's where you get the limit of three wishes okay that's also where you get that the main villain is the vizier who's barely a character right in in the original aladdin um but it's a vizier named jafar that's all from the thief of baghdad okay and in the thief of baghdad the hero is ahmad he's like a kind of really bashful sultan from this one kingdom who goes traveling and hooks up with a street thief named Abu. What? Yeah. And then he falls for the princess and they battle uh, Jafar, you know, trying to run away together. Like the princess sneaks out into the city. He and the princess start getting together and Jafar steals her away a couple of times. And Abu is transformed into a dog at one point, And basically Abu saves the day multiple times. But Ahmed marries, or Ahmad marries the princess. Wow, Disney. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the Thief of Baghdad. That's the 1940. Right. No, I'm just thinking about what Disney did with it. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. So there's, I guess there's two things to just to note about the Disney film. And one is that, like, in 1982, Aladdin has a very Indiana Jones kind of feel. Hmm. The opening, mm-hmm. some of the characterizations, things like that. There's definitely that kind of vibe mm-hmm. uh, to going through the Cave of Wonders mm-hmm. and all of that. The fleeing, all of that stuff you've, you've seen, we've seen before visually. Right, right. Um, the film is, was really roundly critiqued, the lyrics of the film. Right were critiqued for things like the uh, for the racism in the lyrics. Yeah. Um, and were altered a little bit from 92 to 93 for the home video version. They were really altered for the 2019 version mm-hmm. in several places. So, yeah. So that's the story. So the great thing about what we're doing today is that we actually have an opportunity to kind of turn over um, our space um, to our three co-hosts who will be able to answer the, the same questions that we would ask any guests coming into the space, but also, you know, hopefully give us a larger idea of just how a film and a movie like Aladdin impacted their their lives, their culture, their understanding of who they are within the frame of where they are. So we're going to allow our co-host to introduce himself and Shannon and I are gonna pepper back and forth in and out and I am excited how excited are you Shannon I'm really excited all right so you guys go ahead and tell everyone who you are hi this is Reem hi this is Zunara hi this is Rula all right so question one um, that we have that we ask all of our guests is you guys saw the live version um, my understanding is that 
Some of you saw the film version. Some of you saw the live version. So what are some themes that came up for you after watching one or both of these? And what are some things that kind of stick with you? I can start. I have only seen the Cartoon Disney version. And I was on a plane coming back last night to Atlanta. And the guy next to me on his phone was watching the live action one. And I kept kind of leaning over and being like, maybe I can study. (laughs) (laughs) But I did not really get that much in. So yes, I've seen the cartoon one. And your retelling of this original tale kind of brought back like, yes, I remember hearing a story where there was an uncle, not a wizard. Well, that the guy was like the pretend uncle. I'm your long lost, whatever. But that was a long time ago. I think I must have read it in like a compilation of those stories. Yeah, and Zunera and I got together and watched the live action remake of Aladdin this weekend. And I haven't seen the original in years, although I did watch key parts of the original in preparation for this. And it was interesting to, to recall on that and think about the differences between the two versions. Yeah, I recall very vaguely the um, reading of Aladdin and the, what was it, the Magical Lamp? Is that the title? But I remember specifically the genie in the ring because I had an illustrated version. And I remember seeing like this smoky, misty genie coming out of a ring. And I was like, huh, I never noticed that in the cartoon version or the live action version. And I didn't rewatch the cartoon version, but I remember it pretty well because my youngest sister's favorite movie of all time is Aladdin. And she rewatched that pretty much twice a day, mm. every day <laughs> for about six years. And since I'm the oldest, I would have to babysit her and watch the movie. So I do remember a lot of it. Um, And like Reem said, I just watched the live action for the first time this weekend. But one of the things that struck out, especially the, I guess one of the differences is from the cartoon and the live action is just how much more of a role Jasmine had. And so I guess in the original written version, I remember the princess also having a bit of a more active role. So that really struck out. Can you say more about that? I didn't see the live action, so. Sure. I mean, I don't know, but like, I mean, it was interesting in this live action one because one, you know, she expressed very early on that she wanted to be ruler of her people, which... I don't remember in the cartoon at all. (laughs) I didn't Mm -hmm. think so. Um, And uh, she also had her own song in the movie, which is surprising because if you think about other female characters or female identifying characters in Disney canon, a lot of them have solo songs. But if you look at the cartoon Aladdin, she only sings in the duet, really, in was a whole new world, right? So in this one, she has her own song, complete whole song, and she even has like little vignette songs throughout the movie, which I thought was really interesting, especially because the title of the song is Speechless. Hmm. And she's talking about the fact that Jafar says to her at one point, you know, you are to be seen and not to be heard kind of thing. And so she just goes off on this whole idea, like, I'm not just a pretty face. I actually have thoughts. I will not be silenced. And so that really struck out. And that, I thought, was a positive for the live action. But I definitely had some issues with some of the other stuff going on in the movie. I actually have some thoughts about the insertion of this new character for Jasmine to be sort of this more proactive character who wants to be sultan and succeed her father. She wants to take over after her father. To me, it seemed like a very Western interpretation of liberation for a woman to take on this leadership role and this focus on finding a voice, which I think is really important. As a historian, I find kind of 
anachronistic because true while as a princess historically she may have been power she may have had a powerful role to play she certainly would be doing that behind the scenes in the harem and so for the film to make these new additions to the narrative that Jasmine is looking to be sultan that she wants to play a more proactive role in ruling the kingdom i think that's important but at the same time i think what we perceive as liberation and i think is reflected through the film is is filtered through a western gaze and for me i find that kind of problematic I would say that happened in the first film as well. So it's interesting that they updated it to be like, oh, it's not like, you know, we're going to say like she wants to be boss, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But even in the cartoon film, I really felt like there was... I don't know. It's it's interesting to me. There's a whole series in that sort of the what they call the golden age of G- Disney animation. Um, in those years of film, like I remember being like in probably first and second and third grade, right? And a lot of the so-called Disney princesses of those times were supposedly like breaking a mold of patriarchal expectations of femininity because they didn't want to get married or they wanted to do something different from what their father said. But in the end, it was all like a distraction to like in the end, they still get married and they live happily ever after. And that's like the happy ending for the woman. But so there's like this added twist for me anyway, um, with Aladdin of Jasmine's independence and not wanting to be you know set up in an arranged marriage or possessed by a suitor it all comes down to like she's rebelling against her quote-unquote her culture right there's these expectations and she's being a western heroine by saying that's not what i want Mm -hmm. is how it always felt it felt to me like you're telling a story about like these others where um, a young woman going against expectations for her future is in itself like there's no place for that in the society she's in. So I was kind of left with this feeling from the get go that we were supposed to appreciate her as Westerners, as Americans for being more independent than society wanted to let her be. I actually agree with both of these points, only because I'm not a historian by any chance or means, but my partner is an actual academic and studies Mughal Empire specifically. So, you know, the idea that, again, you know, women were very powerful and women held positions, but not in the Western sense. And they were making moves and making policy, you know, doing things basically what we would consider, quote unquote, behind the scenes. And some of them weren't behind the scenes. But um, I agree with Reem, you know, it's it can, you know, read a little weird in the new live action where, um, you know, Jasmine's supposed to outwardly just be like, yes, I want to be sultan and I want to take over when in some cases, you know, women were expected to lead anyway. It's interesting in that sense. And then I do also agree with Rula. I know I was a young kid when all the new Disney princesses were coming out. Pocahontas, Jasmine, Mulan, Belle. Yeah, so I'm like, let me think about this. And the, oh, Ariel. How could I forget Ariel? You know, Jasmine was the first one that looked like me in that she had brown skin and was this pseudo I don't know what she was supposed to it's like oh it's Agrabah she's Arab but I knew it as like a Chinese folktale but she's also looks very South Asian she just spoke to me in that sense but I also kind of it never really sat well with me that you know portraying her as going against her culture but basically you know rebelling against the fact that she might have had to have an arranged marriage or that she has to be married 
missionary to fulfill a certain role. But it was also interesting to see because, you know, in my community, we were told as girls that, you know, it's like, this is an expectation of you and this is arranged marriage. And obviously that changed over time because our parents were immigrants and refugees to this country and they were just kind of holding on to a certain, I guess... What I'm trying to just say is I, I, I agree that it just, I never really examined how I felt about how she was portrayed in that sense as well. Because, you know, my parents were arranged marriage and I, it was a happy, it's a happy marriage. So it was a happy marriage. My mom passed away, but, um, you know, and I have family members that have gone through it. So it's not that I wouldn't see it as being a regressive type of marriage, especially considering so many people now do the match.com and online. I'm like, that's basically what it was. <laughs> like, instead of a computer program it was an old auntie <laughs> or some or not just an old auntie but an entire community of people being like oh yeah what's your personality type what do you like what are your goals what do you want to do do you want to be a mom do you not want to be a mom do you you know what do you like I'm really excited for this part because I really want us to I want to hear how this movie landed for you all when it came out and also I think that there's a lot from this is a reason that I didn't want to be the only person on the show either because I have one experience of expectations around marriage of one experience of being brown in America and like the movie can't even decide who it's talking about or where it's talking about and that's like a really big thing I think we we should talk about and has been talked about when the casting for the live action film was happening here's where I'm coming from Zunair was just talking about okay when Aladdin came out the cartoon movie we were kids Mm -hmm. I hear you. It was the first movie where there was like a girl from somewhere else in like on on big, big screen and nobody knew how to understand who I was or where I was from. And it's like, it's funny, but sad that like Aladdin is like the closest their understanding could come. Right. (laughs) That's nothing like where my parents are from, really. Mm -hmm. But like better than nothing, I guess. (laughs) So then I'm seeing I'm seeing myself as seen through. Mm -hmm the eyes of these other children around me who have no exposure to where I'm from except for this movie that may or may not be about where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And so I'm starting to understand that this is how other people understand me Mm -hmm. and not really something you can like totally articulate at the time growing up, but you know, I had to contend with like, oh no, it's not like Aladdin. Oh my God. Like we didn't ride camels to school. (laughs) All of this stuff. I mean, the first, okay. I will tell a story. It's 1991. I'm like six or seven years old. And my parents are from Lebanon and they haven't been back to Lebanon in a long time because of what is often called a civil war. But basically it was much longer. It was a 15 year war. There was a lot of different parties to it. And finally in 1990, 91, there's a ceasefire. And um, so the State Department of the United States says, okay, it's okay to travel from the United States to Lebanon now. So my parents are overjoyed. They really want to go see their family. We go and basically the entire summer vacation we spend there, three full months. I was also in the process of that year, I finished first grade and I was going to go to second grade at a new school. So at the end of this summer in Lebanon, my mom finds out like her brother is coming and he lives in France, but he's coming back to Lebanon. And so she's going to extend her stay so she can stay and see him. So we stay two more weeks. So I'm two weeks late to school in my new school. And apparently while I'm gone, they're like, and we have another girl coming to the class and her name is Rula. And she's not here yet because she's coming from a faraway place called Lebanon. And... (laughs) So, you know, I get there and they introduce me two weeks in. I'm like the new, new, new girl, not just new, but late. (laughs) And they're like, this is Rula. And people are going around the class to introduce themselves. And they're like, hi, I'm Jennifer. And it was like, this just set the tone for a lot for years. And that was the same school year 
that either the same school year or like within one year that Aladdin came out. Pretty sure it came out 92, 93. You know, so I was already getting the like, do you ride camels to school question? Do you guys even have TV? And I was so like invested in making sure people understood I was like normal. <laughs> I was like, no, we don't ride camels and we do have TV and I'm regular. And also I grew up here in the United States. So all these layers of like, people are trying to understand me, but they're doing such a terrible job. I'm like embarrassed about all of it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I remember I remember also either being I can't remember when did Aladdin come out? 92. Okay. Yeah, I remember being taunted as a child by some of my classmates going around and being like, "Oh, hey, what's up, Princess Jasmine?" and also, "Can we talk about the costumes that it spurred the Halloween costumes?" I mean, should we even get into Trudeau dressing up like Aladdin in black in brown face? I mean, it, yes. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's just a lot about that film that, like Rula said, kind of formed the first impression of like what the Middle East was for a lot of my classmates growing up. And it wasn't a good thing. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I like I said, though, that, you know, Jasmine was the first time I saw a brown woman on the screen. Granted, she's a cartoon, um, but it was like the first national, international super hit, whatever, besides Bollywood. Which at the time in America, for sure, nobody really understood, I don't think. So unfortunately for me, my family's from Pakistan, and they had no idea where that was. Even if you said it's next to India, you would get all sorts of questions like, oh, is it like underneath India? Is it on the left of India? Or they didn't even know where India was, let's be real. And so then my frame of reference, unfortunately, was Apu from Simpsons. And so I got a lot of comments about, you smell like curry, you're a dothead, do you even eat meat? Your parents speak and then they would do the Apu voice. So that was already kind of my shaping of my identity as a child of immigrants in the U.S. And I hated it because <laughs> it's not true. Yes, some of us have accents, but we also speak five other languages. So, you know, <laughs> anyway. You know, so when Jasmine and Aladdin came out, I was confused because, yeah, again, like it's set in the Middle East, but my understanding of the Middle East and being a Muslim, the outfits really confused me. <laughs> and I was like, well, if this is set in so-called Saudi Arabia or just an Arab country, I don't think they really wear clothing like this. And I am not sure why she's wearing harem pants um, or what or MC Hammer pants, really. <laughs> so, you know, there was just a lot of confusion, but it was also excitement because, again, like it's the first story of somebody who kind of looked like me but I did get I didn't get the camel question <laughs> I definitely didn't get the do you have tv or anything but I did get a lot of the Simpsons references um, and then of course 9-11 happened and that's a whole other thing and that was my freshman year of college um, and it's like all of a sudden Pakistan's on the map all of a sudden Muslims are on the map and you know I don't wear hijab my mom did so I'm not visibly Muslim but it's just the questions that would come after that or um, that's a whole other thing that could be a whole other talk. On the question, I think on the question of costumes, it's worth dwelling a little bit because in the remake of the film, um, I understood that they went to great lengths to have, you know, a community network sort of consult on the film so that they don't repeat some of the mistakes of the original, um, especially with some of the very sort of racist and violent references in the original score. Um, so what ended up happening, though, in the live action film was the costumes were very elaborate, very interesting to look at, but also kind of a mishmash of various cultures throughout the Middle East 
East, North Africa, and South Asia, which I think also is problematic because it only, you know, orientalizes the Middle East as this exotic other that has no specificity. There are no specific cultures within that need to be and should be nuanced and identified. And so that was something that me and Zanera picked up on and like we couldn't let go of like, why is his turban so big? Um, what's his name? Is that Genie? The Je- Genie's turban was ginormous. It, was it made no. It was ridiculous. It made no sense. Um, it was interesting to look at. But there are a lot of other. There are a lot of other things about the costuming, especially that took inspiration from South Asia. A lot about the dance numbers, mm-hmm. also from Bollywood. So that was really interesting, and I think I'm sure you all have a lot to say about that and can chime in. That was the most distracting part for me in the live action. Poor Reem had to suffer through me through the entire movie being like, you know, oh my gosh, that looks Rajasthani or that looks Punjabi or what the heck is she wearing? Is that a lenga with the, you know, Judy pajama? Um, these are all South Asian type of clothing. And it just kept warping with my mind that sometimes I couldn't pay attention to the dialogue because I was so fixated on what they were wearing <laughs> and being very confused. I was like, can they? I guess that was my biggest frustration with the live action is that I feel like I guess in their appeal to try to appease or try to include as much as they could it got muddied and it was frustrating because it was just so distracting for me but one of the things I did also notice in the live action that was different from the cartoon version is specifically Jasmine's outfits Um, you know she was covered up a lot more in the live action and by covered up I mean you know her midriff wasn't showing not that there's anything wrong with that it's just that you know in the cartoon version that was like her iconic costume and one of the costumes that really always made me cringe as a child and even as an adult is when Jafar makes her his quote-unquote sex slave I don't know what's going on there and she's got this fiery red ensemble going on and even though she's not actually under the spell because Jeannie can't force you know people to fall in love um, but she uses her womanly wiles so I guess that's a throwback to the original written version but um there was none of that in the live action so I was very thankful because I was bracing myself for that moment and I kept telling Reem I was like oh my god the outfit that's coming I'm gonna probably pull my eyes out because it just makes me want to throw up but it never happened and I was very excited about that Jafar also was not nearly as creepy in the live action one of the other things me being from Philly there is a huge history of the Philly beard, which is AKA the black Muslim beard. And so I was also very distracted by the beard lengths and the shapes that were going on on some of the actors. It was interesting that they made Jafar a little more clean shaven um, in the live action because, you know, in the cartoon, he has that like long black curly beard that he's always twirling deviously, just like, you know, I guess like in most villain stories that somebody has a mustache or some kind of hair, they're always twirling it. So he didn't do any of that in the live action, which I thought was also very interesting, but I digress. (laughs) That thing with the costume, it's like the red costume with the big old, like, it's gone from being bangles to more like um, shackles. It's it's like the Princess Leia moment of that movie, you know? Like, everybody remembers, like, super iconic, oh my god, like, this warrior who has been, I mean, she's being subjugated, and, like, sexuality shouldn't be a humiliating thing, but, like, it's not at all of her own accord that she's wearing, like, a metal bikini and in chains with, like, this, like, gross enslaver, and like it's in the same way that like a lot I think uh, I don't know about you all but a lot of like boys and men who are 
who were like of my peer generation like that is burned into their minds and I think informed a lot of their like early this is this is hot stuff like that stuck with me this this princess jasmine that she stuck with me for a really long time and going back to like jasmine overall period right like like Zunera said like only only brown woman I see and like you know trying to imagine yourself as a Disney princess like everybody does it's like I guess it's her so a it's interesting she's like one of the only Disney princesses of the the princess pantheon that we don't that doesn't have a solo song very interesting she's I have more I want to say about this but you know okay so she's in the sense that I was like this is someone I can identify with like she's brown she's got brown hair brown eyes she's like me but so then I was like okay there's a way for a brown girl like me to be beautiful and it's this it's that, right? So, like, inside of me, all the time there was, gro- like, growing up, trying to become, like, confusedly becoming a sexual being, like, that that's the way that it can be. That I can be, like, a person with long, dark hair and something... <laughs> this is so embarrassing, right? But, like, something mysterious because I'm different and far away. And it's so funny how even, like, going into high school, the way that, like, adults would assume my family was and my parents were and my dating life was had a lot to do... My family is not Muslim, Mm -hmm. um, but I think between what they understood of Islam and what they understood of Middle Eastern and Arab culture and what they knew from the story of the Sultan and his daughter, like, they really had some assumptions about, you know, am I allowed to date and what would... I, I got I got caught kissing my boyfriend at school and I was like, you can't tell my parents. Oh my God, you can't tell my parents. And I actually think, looking back, you know, I was like, I think that the principal thought that my parents would kill me because, I, I mean, you know, I was like, oh my God, my parents are going to kill me. But I wasn't like, my parents are going to kill me. And, but they just were, they were like, okay, okay, you can, you can like do lunch duty instead. <laughs> Saved by Orientalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> I mean, the first punishment was going to be, like, I had to call my parents and tell them why this happened. And I was like, I'm never, that's never going to happen. But so, yeah, Saved by Orientalism. <laughs> anyway, and then it just got to, even, like, in adulthood, the person who is my, now, now my husband, my spouse, when we first, when we first hooked up later, he was like, he was just saying something and it was meant to be flattering but he was like yeah I could like kind of tell I don't know I was really connecting with I was really drawn to your eyes and I was like what about my eyes (laughs) he's and he said you know like those what did he even say it was like those almond shaped dark eyes and I was like don't orientalize me (laughs) and then I just have never been able to, like, fully trust that people who are attracted to me are attracted to me as opposed to, like, what they attracted to Princess Jasmine, right? I must have been self-consciously aware of, aware of myself as a nerd from an early age because I totally identified with Belle from, like, day one, and it was nobody else after that. So Princess Jasmine was annoying because I didn't identify with her, and yet she was associated with me. Mm-hmm. And that's funny because I, I, I agree. Belle was the first one that I really fell in love with because the books. I was like, oh, my God, she has a library. Well, the Beast has a library that I would die for. And so I totally understand why she's there. <laughs> and I love her dresses. And she's totally into books. But it was, I mean, I, I like I said, I didn't get as much as Rula did about riding a camel or any of that. People, when they saw Jasmine, I don't think really jumped to me until afterwards when they were like, oh, it's like Arabian. So, you know, people wore these pants and the women look like this and this is what happened. Or, and especially the lyrics 
Hendricks in the original the Disney version, like where they cut off your ear. I remember hearing that and cringing because I was like, this is seriously okay to be in a song? So it was really interesting to hear the live action and again, bracing myself. I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I didn't hear it. And I was like, wait a minute. They completely changed the lyrics. So that was really interesting. Did you know... Um, when that movie went from, when the cartoon went from being um, in the theater to home video, they changed that line, the one about cutting off your ear if they don't like your face, and they also eliminated the line of, like, it's barbaric, but hey, it's home, mm-hmm. which my parents, when they heard that, they were like, I mean, they kind of laughed. I think they were kind of used to being stereotypes, but they were like, wow, that's, mm-hmm. what the hell? Mm-hmm. And anyway, so I guess there was, even at that time, enough of a pushback that they changed it for the home v- version don't remember this and I swear I watched the home version a billion times but I guess I don't know if maybe we had an old copy or something or maybe it was taped from a tv screening I have no idea but it definitely had it in there because I remember hearing it each time and cringing when my sister listened to it and I would try to cover her ears because I was like I don't want her to think this but going back to the costume because I realized I omitted something because not only was Jasmine's midriff not appearing, but Aladdin had on a shirt the whole time. I and I was like, wow, I really noticed that, you know? And the only time you would see people kind of in bearing their midriffs or even, I guess, scantily clothed was really in the dance numbers, which was really interesting to me. And just the dance numbers in general, because they were very Bollywood-ish, but not... Um, And that was very distracting. But then I also realized Guy Ritchie directed this movie afterwards. And I was like, this makes so much sense. (laughs) Um, Just with the, you know, having, um, you know, musicians as actors and having a dance number and certain movements that they had. The very over-the-top entrance scenes, that's to me, is very Guy Ritchie. Um, But I think the... Basically, in a nutshell, for me, the clothing in the movie, while it was beautiful and I did appreciate the fact that, you know, they at least tried to incorporate some identity of some either, you know, North Africa or some Arab country or some random part of South Asia, um, it did just almost come off. um, I mean, I think they probably said they spent a lot of time. They were intentional. They had people they were, you know, consulting with. Um, but it came off to me as almost not being lazy, but just why wouldn't you commit to just one place <laughs> and just stick to that? Um, and um, I feel like that was just for the clothing. For the casting, I have other thoughts on that, but um, but the clothing just really, I don't know why. It's just I'm such a visual person, so when I saw those costumes, I just, like I said, I could not get beyond some of the dialogue because I was just like trying to sit there and be like, that top is from there and the bottom is from there and I don't understand because those would never go together or they were completely different time periods and that would also bother me but um yeah I don't know if you had any other thoughts yeah I mean just in general I think beyond you know Jasmine being filtered through the western gaze I think there was a lot about the movie I mean the costumes that were filtered through the western gaze the dance number where she's dancing or you know the sultan throws a party and they're all dancing together. A princess, a royal princess would never be dancing um, in that way. And that was a very sort of Western dance and that it was a partnered na- dance, which you don't see in Middle Eastern cultures unless you're doing a group dance, which is called the debke. Um, and again, although they went to great lengths clearly to sort of um, 
address some of the issues of the cartoon movie, it was still, at the end of the day, filtered through that Western perception of romance, of politics as being sort of out there in the public as opposed to in private, um, which is what it would have been in the time period, in the fictional time period that we're talking about. So even though Agrabah is this fictional place, and we can always fall back on, well, Agrabah is fictional, so it's okay for it to be abstract in that sense. I think because Hollywood has this very steep history of orientalizing that this movie deserved more nuance um, and people of Middle Eastern background deserve more nuance than this. And yeah. I mean, that's where even the casting kind of rankled me a little bit. You know, um, it was again, I agree with with Reem, they definitely deserve more nuance and it just felt like they were playing lip service in some sense. Um, Especially because, can we talk about the most problematic thing for me for the live action? What was the point of the introduction of Prince Anders? Why is there this white prince from some Scandinavian country who is now a suitor for Jasmine? I mean, he comes in for like five minutes and then you don't hear from him again. There was no real development. There was no real reason to bring this character in. And here you are talking about how, you know, you're going to try to be more respectful of the fact that, you know, the cartoon version did a lot of things that, not angered, but just didn't portray people in a true sense. Um, And then you bring in this character who's there, I don't know if it was comedic relief or something, but it really spoke volumes that it was a white man with blonde hair from some fake Scandinavian country who was supposed to be this you know, ultimate suitor for Jasmine. And until Prince Ali came along, that was her, that was supposed to be the person she's supposed to end up with. And and even just, again, with the casting then, right? Like, she's beautiful. I don't remember the actress's name, but, you know, again, like, it's that whole, coming from South Asia, you know, fair skin is always considered more desirable, but a lot of the cast traditionally or even, I guess, not traditionally, let me rewind. Even in the cartoon and in the live action, it's almost, again, the whole Western idea and ideal of beauty um, and what's considered handsome and what's considered masculine and feminine um, was definitely present throughout the live action film. Um, I just wanted to get your ideas about that kind of the casting and just even... Um, the accents. Oh, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah, the accents as with the cartoon, but also now in the live action. I think only three characters had American accents, and that was Jasmine, Aladdin, and Genie. Um, and then everybody else had some sort of Weird abstract pseudo. Middle Eastern accent, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um and in the film, it was all the bad guys who had Middle Eastern accents. So there was still some sort of translation process there for a Western audience. Here are the characters that really matter. Here are the protagonists, and we're going to make them speak in an American accent, which I thought was really interesting. Now that you mention it, that's exactly how it was in the cartoon version as well. 
my partner will often go, he'll go, your majesty, Jafar's been, <laughs> I can't do it, to your majesty, Jafar's been hypnotizing you with this. And it's like, <laughs> it's very like bro-ish. It's very bro-ish. It reminds me also of that Captain Planet, like the one character that's supposed to be like the American. He's like, fire! <laughs> right? <laughs> So, um, it's, and Jasmine has kind of like a refined voice, but she doesn't have a Middle Eastern, so-called Middle Eastern accent. She doesn't sound British the way that Jafar does. The like evil British voice is this like other thing that Disney does. We were supposed to, in the beginning, identify with Aladdin in particular. And yes, I think that speaks to the accents. And you, you were asking like, what were some themes we saw? And thinking back to the cartoon version, I thought a lot about how I saw they kind of like hammer it home but like there's freedom at the end right and like freedom for aladdin is that you're being your true self and freedom for jasmine is that you get to be with the man you love instead of a man you don't love and freedom for the genie is that you don't have to be a genie obeying everybody's wishes anymore which is like the that's like the i think it's kind of like the the truest to form like you know who can argue with that but like all these other like it feels like you're trying to sandwich in like okay yeah sure like this is freedom i get to i get to be with prince ali i've still never left the the castle like whatever and then that they change the rules of this backwards country in the end because because of aladdin who like changed everybody's minds and has an american accent so but yeah, no, like the accents when we've noticed it very early on in the live action. And at first we were like, wait, is it just the villains that have the accent? Because that would be awful. But then we noticed it's basically like uh, there was another new character. Jasmine had a handmaiden who was like her other friend, I guess, supposed to be her friend, but also her subordinate. So that was a little interesting. She also had an accent. And I think she's actually an American so it was a little strange that they made her put on. The actress is an American. The actress is an American, and they made her put on this weird little accent. Yeah, so we were just very hyper aware of it from the get-go, like, especially because the scene where, you know, and it was different from the cartoon where Jasmine goes out into the city of Agrabah much earlier on than in the cartoon. It's like the, the opening scene, and then she's the one who gives the kids bread. It's, it's not Aladdin. And there's some bracelet that was not in the cartoon. I was very confused about that. But, uh, you know, at first you very, you notice it distinctly because she's talking and she doesn't have an accent. And all of a sudden the the owner of the stall or whatever starts shouting and he has an accent. I'm like, oh, this is how it's going to be. This is how it's going to go. <laughs> but then as we kept watching, we realized, yeah, it was basically it seemed like only Aladdin, Jasmine and the genie were the only ones that quote unquote spoke in American accents. What do you all feel about Will Smith being cast as Genie? What do you feel about it? <laughs> I guess Rula didn't watch it, so yeah. she didn't see. Um, I mean, you know, I know a lot of people are upset because, you know, it's not Robin Williams, but that's not, I didn't even, that wasn't remotely. Um, it was just strange to see the one character that's technically a slave being portrayed by a black man. That kind of hit hard <laughs> I was like hey here is a character and he's you know supposed to be this big larger than life character but really he's a slave and he's shackled you know he's literally shackled um, it was really uncomfortable for me to see him in that character 
more so than, you know, even any compare. I had no comparisons of him with Robin Williams. It's just two very different things. You know, one's a cartoon. Cartoons can do a lot of crazy things. You can't really get away with stuff in live action. I think that just, I was very uncomfortable in a nutshell. Yeah, the optics were a little bit disturbing on that front. And I think we were also talking about the optics of when Prince Ali or Aladdin strolls into town with this massive entourage and it's very carnivalesque and a lot of the back initially the dancers in the background are black yeah we did notice that too um i mean i'd have to probably go back and freeze frame but it was so apparent that a lot of the dancers or the supposed help um was darker skinned people um and some of them like you know especially the dancing was it looked like it had drawn from carnival or other cultures that are uh, beyond the Arab, pseudo-South Asian, North African. Um, yeah, we just we spent a lot of time talking during the dancing, just being like, what do you think about this? And did you just notice that that dancer is actually black? And, or, you know, or I don't, it was just when we first saw Jeannie especially come on the screen, I cringed because, you know, he's he's got shackles on. And I was like, uh, this is really uncomfortable because it's a slave coming out of a... to do these bidding of his master, and he has no say. And so I, I don't know. Like, I would really be interested to see how Will Smith, and I'm sure he's been interviewed about it, how he felt about playing that character. Because I would really like to ask him. I'm like, did you... Did this come across at all? I'm sure it did. Um, or maybe it didn't, but I wouldn't know because Will Smith, if you're listening, <laughs> I'd like to know. <laughs> so Nara's number is... <laughs> I have a question for both of you. Does does the, the genie gaining his freedom at the end, um, does that get repeated in either the live action movie or was it part of the original story that you remember reading? I don't remember in the original story at all. Like, there's no mention again about the genies afterwards. Um, But in the cartoon, you know, he's freed. He kind of does his own thing. But in this live-action one, you know, he ends up with a family. So he ends up marrying the handmaiden um, and having kids with her. And so he's just, you know, a family man. And he's got these kids. And now he's a storyteller. And he's the one that's actually the narrator, Um, which was also different from the cartoon because that's not how it was in the cartoon. It was like a... I believe it was a merchant, yeah, which I don't remember if the genie was disguised as. I don't think so. I think it was just a merchant. <clears throat> but in this one, it's the, the genie in the beginning as a human with his wife or partner and kids is actually the narrator. So um, it kind of comes full circle because you see that in the very beginning. And then at the very end, they're back on the boat. And so he has a life, but it's a partnered life with kids. It's a patrimonious ending, yes. I would say. I mean, I think in a lot of, even even Jasmine being this more empowered character, it's still a very patrimonious undertaking on her part, especially when she turns to the captain of the guard and she talks to him about how he came to the, to the palace as a very young child with his family and how they took care of him and he was always loyal to the sultan and she asks him to fall back on that sort of duty of being loyal to the sultan and to her, essentially. And so, again, I think, yeah. Patriarchy. So, actually, I'm, I'm curious for um, my own learning. When you say patrimonious, are you thinking about, like, in the sense of we're also coming to 
like a conclusion that's that's right for like nation and country is that what you're talking about i think you just took it to a new level oh (laughs) (laughs) never mind what do you mean yeah yeah in some ways i think so okay all right so we're going to move on to the second question how does the work that you do in your daily life you talked you guys talked a lot about how Disney culture, how Disney culture within itself greatly impacted your view of yourselves, others people's view of you, your culture. Um, And you also, I think, did a really (laughs) amazing job of having some really good commentary around just some of the the problematic themes which which existed within both versions of uh, the cartoon and the film. In your daily work, what are some ways in which you work to unravel oppression and problematic narratives like the ones that you saw um, in viewing these various versions of Aladdin? So I work in public health, which, you know, traditionally in, in America especially, has a history of a lot of white supremacy, has a history of colonialism, has a history of omitting other people's voices. And not just voices, but actually counting them within even the data, right? So one of the things that's always been one of my passions, being South Asian, being a scientist, a behavioral scientist, somebody who works in public health, is just making sure that those voices come to the table. Um, And that's really difficult because depending if you're working for a federal agency or even local or state or even research, research as a whole, we know, is is dominated by specific folks. So white people, (laughs) quote unquote. I guess what I'm trying to say, I don't know if I'm doing it effectively, but one of the things that I try is just even being present in meetings or being present when they're talking through certain policies, because it's not just even about omitting people of color, they omit ableism as well. You know, a lot of times people forget about accessibility, and that's a huge problem, because we're in public health, we should always be thinking about accessibility. And that requires, you know, linguistic access, it requires physical access, it requires audiovisual, um, it requires so many different things, and a lot of times, you know, for, if so I can give an example. When I worked for the Philadelphia Department of Public Health, I was working on pandemic planning. And at the time, they thought it was going to be uh, avian flu. It turned out to be swine flu a couple years later. But we were working with long-term care facilities. And we're working with hospitals, um, all these different healthcare systems. And basically, it was a policy on, you know, what would you do in case of this pandemic outbreak? How would you vaccinate people? How would you get them treatment? How would you prevent the you know, the uh, the spread of this flu, right? And the biggest thing, again, I'm, I'm the only, first of all, one of the only women in the room. Um, there was probably two other people. So it's a room full of white men. And it was just them talking through the policy. And, you know, they're like, oh, well, we got to have, you know, this high school. Um, this will become the, the pod, the points of dispensing, yada, yada, yada. And they set it in a neighborhood that's, One, has no transportation. Two, has no sidewalks. Three, the high school has no stairs, let alone an elevator or a ramp. So, Or sorry, they had a lot of stairs, but they had no elevator or ramp. So how are people that, you know, are in wheelchairs or have mobility issues supposed to even get in? So you're automatically discriminating an entire group of people. Um, And then, you know, a lot of the city where... 
the pandemic could happen, so we have live bird markets in Philadelphia, are historically in Asian and Mexican neighborhoods, right? So, you know, language could be an issue as well. Um, so I actually had to, and I'm, you know, just fresh out of undergrad, a couple of years, and it's my first meeting, like first ever, and they're talking about this, and I'm like grappling with myself. Do I say something? Do I say something? Should I say something? It's my first day at work. I don't want to get fired. And I ended up actually speaking up because I was like, I can't because if I don't say anything now and this is a process that goes on, they're going to continue to omit these people that they're supposed to include in this planning. And I'm glad I did. Granted, I got a couple of eye rolls. Uh, I got like one guy grunting and being like, really? <laughs> got the ADA hair. And I was like, look, like if there is this outbreak, and you're supposed to be vaccinating people um, or giving them Cipro and Doxy, you're going to have to think about it because this city is made up of more people than that, those that look like you, right? And, you know, my boss wasn't too pleased with me at first, so, of course, I only stayed in that role for a year and moved on to something else. But I like to think that, you know, just me speaking up in that sense, it made it, made it a part. It wasn't as big a part of the policy that I wanted it to be, but at least I think it gave them a starting point. And I just also want to go into, you know, the fact that, again, like Asians, historically, we get lumped in this gigantic monolith in this country, and it's so frustrating, like, especially being in science, because every research study, every medical study, every, you know, psychological study breaks down race. It's white, black, Latino-Hispanic, which is also troubling in a lot of other ways. Um, and then it'll say, like, other, it'll say Asian. It might say indigenous. It might say native or mixed, right? But Asian. And being somebody from Pakistan who's South Asian with family in the UK where categories are different, it's frustrating because we are so different within the Asian diaspora, right? Like, you have people from Vietnam. You have people from uh, Laos. You have people from... India, etc. We all come with different socioeconomic status. We come with different education levels. We come with different um, privilege, I would say. And that and the fact that we are not new to this country. People always talk about Asians coming to the U.S. as if it's a new wave of immigration. And granted, the most recent wave is is new. But historically speaking, Asians have been in this country. You know, Filipino settlers have been here since the 1500s. Vietnamese have settled in New Orleans and have been shrimpers for decades. The first people to work on the railroads in Colorado were actually from India. They were Punjabi. And, you know, they weren't allowed to marry. They weren't allowed to bring their wives. So they married um, other laborers who happened to be Mexican. <laughs> so there's a whole history of us being here. And we're just never talked about in any classes. I know we didn't talk about them in my high school unless you took like a specific course. And so where I'm going with this is, you know, in health, they lump us together and it's detrimental to our communities because, you know, somebody, so you'll see something like smoking, smoking kills this many white people and this many black and not enough Asians, right? So we're not going to give any research money to them. But when you actually parse it out, Korean men and women have some of the highest rates of lung cancer, right? And so it, you start to drill down and you realize, you know, hepatitis levels are astronomical. Hepatitis C and B and A are astronomical in Asian communities. And a lot of it is because, you know, these programs, which come from federal money or congressional funding or state funding, they're not gearing their resources to these communities because they think that all Asians 
we're all model minorities. We're all we're all fine, um, and that's not true. So it's it's something that I try to bring into all of my work when I can, um, but sometimes I can't because it depends <laughs> which level of public health I'm at. So that was my long answer of basically of how I try to address how I see oppression um, within my work. And I guess I just want to give a shout out to Rula and the uh, Knop Off because I get to do a lot of that passion work outside of my quote unquote official full-time work, the money, the bills, <laughs> the, the work that pays the bills. But yeah, that I, I hope that answers that question. I, I appreciate a lot of the what you shared in and of itself and also because it sort of foregrounds and contextualizes some of what I was going to share. One, so NAPOF, the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, is um, an organization where I have been organizing for almost three years, um, doing community organizing and um, bringing together Asian American and Pacific Islander women, girls, and gender nonconforming folks so that we can transform conditions in society to give us what we really need. Um, so a lot of the work we do is not like cultural work, changing stereotypes and so forth, but you have to do that stuff in order to get us all to be seen and heard and to engage with um, policy and political mechanisms. So early on, Zunera and I were working on a project um, where we wanted to understand um, Asian American Pacific Islander women and girls um, health needs and specifically reproductive health and reproductive justice needs um, in Metro Atlanta. And so we were looking into the research and it turns out there's just not a lot of research um, into our community as itself. As Zunera said, we're, we're lucky if we get named AAPI and not just other. And I would say that's especially true in the South where people really understand that there's a history of like there's black folks and there's white folks. And then like, I guess there's other things in history that were, you know, other kinds of people, but it's, it's not really the focus, understandably, but um, you have to, you have to like go back and discover yourself in in history. And so anyway, we were looking in the public health literature for, you know, what are Asian American young people's experiences around, um, specifically, we were looking at sex and sex education. And um, this is just one example, but we found a we found a study, again, like I said, there wasn't a lot, but we found a study that said that Asian American adolescents um, have less sex and they have sex later, their first time having sex is later in life, um, than other teenagers. And so, and the researchers, their conclusion was, you know, we think there's a protective effect, that's what they called it, there's a protective effect of Asian culture. And that basically, like, Asian American teenagers, they're more obedient, their parents are like, you can't have sex, and so they don't have sex, and that's protective. But that's great for us. That's really good, right? The focus groups that we did of young women in the metro Atlanta area, it was very interesting because um, so the Asian American Pacific Islander umbrella, it includes 50 or so nationalities and ethnicities and 250 languages. And we had people of all different immigration histories and ethnic and religious backgrounds and linguistic backgrounds. And we're all around a table. And it's so funny. There's so much diversity among us. But the most common answer to what did you learn about sex and relationships growing up was nothing. And the second one was don't do it. And oh, 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 would I looking in our own data, I would not say that 
that there were protective effects from this. Okay. And so um, one of the biggest things that I would say is that, like, yes, we need to be at the table. And not just, like, there needs to be one person from the Asian American Pacific Islander organization at the table. There needs to be lots of us at the table. And we need a rep that we're all different. And we need to be in charge of telling our own stories and saying why we think that this is the case and whether we think it was protective or not. And whether, you know, I mean, and that's, that's, I think that there's two ways that people often read, like, culture among, especially, I'd say especially some of us, Arab and South Asian and Muslim girls, right, that it could be, like, really good for us to be, like, sequestered, or it could be really bad for us to be sequestered. But both of those assume, number one, that we're sequestered, and both of them assume that we can't tell the stories for ourselves. And I would say, like many things, there's just a lot of nuance in it. One fall, we had a photo show, which we called Decolonizing Love, and it was about Asian American and Pacific Islander women, girls, gender nonconforming folks um, living and loving in the South. What does our community and family and sex lives and love lives look like? And that, you know, we've been here for some time. And it was really cool to have whole walls covered in our own stories visualized of you know, our, here's, here's my family. Here's what it looks like. Here's what we're doing. Um, like here's me and my partner. Here's me and my niece. Here is like an interesting snapshot of my parents from when I was too little to understand gender. And I was like, this is my own photo. I was like poking my dad's nipple. Right. (laughs) Um, like, and like young love between people of our parents' generation. Um, there's, there's a lot there. And, making assumptions about how our relationships are or what our families do or don't need, you know, because we've already got it covered, we're already protected, we don't have any health problems, or, you know, we're just poor, oppressed people because of our inherited culture. Either way, like, let us tell that story instead. So I'm a professor of Middle East history, so I don't even know where to begin with this question. What I do in the classroom, I think, directly tries to unravel those problematic narratives about the Middle East and about the Orient, so to speak, that, you know, you pick up in your day-to-day, I think, as an American citizen. So one of the things I like to point out to my students is that they are of this 9-11 generation that is directly impacted by, you know, the policies of the war on terror. And that what we study in the classroom, especially as we get to, you know, the 20th century, 21st centuries, is a reflection of of them as a body politic. And so that when we do talk about Orientalism and we do talk about othering, in some ways they are sort of a juxtaposition of the history we're learning about. They are the other in this in this instance. And I push them and I try to encourage them to think about how the knowledge that they're taking away in the classroom is in itself work that is empowering because they're getting a different narrative in my classroom that they will watching Fox News and that they're doing the type of work by taking control of their own sort of knowledge production on this particular topic, they're sort of upending that Orientalist nexus, right, where power has been 
traditionally and historically in the hands of the colonial power. Knowledge is produced by the colonial power. And here, in a very diverse classroom environment at Agnes Scott, it's instead students who are responsible for their own knowledge. And then that, that itself is a deorientalizing project if you do it the right way. So that's kind of what I do in the classroom. And not to mention that, oh my gosh, Hollywood, thank you for all the wonderful examples of Orientalism that you've given me to work with. <laughs> um, I can't, I mean, Sex in the City 2, that movie, oh God. In my class on gender and Orientalism, I have to start with a clip where, you know, they're, I forget where they are, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, one of those places. And, you know, they're watching a woman wearing a niqab, a face veil, eat French fries as if it is the most enlightening thing in the world, as if, you know, people who cover their face can't eat French fries in public. And that's, you know, that they're, it's the Sex in the City crew, and they're watching a woman in a face veil eat her French fries um, while another woman is complaining about her marital problems. And who's the main character's name? Carrie. Carrie. And is it, yeah, so Carrie tells her, you know, you're, you're here and you're talking, you're in this faraway place, and you're obsessing about your marriage, and you're missing the action of the woman in the face veil, and they call it a niqab, which is not the word eating her french fries and I love to use that in my classroom because it's just so problematic on so many levels but also hilarious to and embarrassing to kind of watch this unfold um and yeah it's 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 great so thank you for all of these wonderful examples I can use in my classroom (laughs) I want to take your class now yeah I've switched over now in my modern release survey to um showing Cardi B's Bodak Yellow Mm. because it's an entirely different discussion of power Hmm. when you talk about the relationship of hip-hop to the Arab world and how it's different when a white person is, you know, engaging in Orientalism and how this is a story about Cardi B being on the come up and she's using these classically or stereotypically stereotypical images of the Middle East to express that. All right, so we are... Down to the last question. And this is usually a question that people either really, really love or they really, really have anxiety over. Not going to say hate. So my question is this. If you had the opportunity to retell Aladdin, what would that story look like? That is an excellent question. I think if I had to retell Aladdin in a way that was modern as this, I think I think this live-action version of Aladdin tried to fix some of the problems of the cartoon version by introducing this new narrative about Jasmine, for example. I think one way to fix it would just do an Aladdin that was set in current times. And ask people of that culture how how would this story play out this rags to riches meeting a richer woman in the middle east i mean there are so many movies already in the middle east that are about this subject let's make a remake that's actually in the present
I'm so tired of reading or seeing things about men in general. So if you look at my bookshelf, bookshelves, plural, actually, in our home, I have entire shelves just dedicated to women authors about, you know, female identifying characters. So one of my all-time favorite is Maxine Hong Kingston's Women Warrior. So in my version of Aladdin, it would kind of be a mixture of her land and like Hunger Games and Woman Warrior, where if anyone's familiar with any of these, and I'm probably dating myself, so Herland is kind of problematic, but it's Charlotte Perkins Gilman talking about this ideal world where it's only women, there are no men, and these three men come in, you know, on a boat, um, somehow find this land, and there are three different types of men. One's like the one that puts women on a romantic pedestal, like women can do no wrong, One's the brute who wants to rape and, you know, objectify women. And the third is supposed to be the most moderate, the most, you know, equal to his um, female identifying partner. And so in the end, you know, they get kicked out because the brute and whatever. But either way, so it's like the Herland where it's all these women warriors and then woman warrior talking about strong women who come on the up and up on their own uh, despite being told, you know, you're female or you're you're a girl and you have to do this, this, and this with these certain gender stereotypes. And then Hunger Games. So <laughs> I don't know what that would look like, but I think I would watch the shit out of that. <laughs> it's just, you know, as, as a young girl, that's how I identify myself, I always wanted to see girls doing stuff because, you know, I was constantly, like, luckily my family's not the stereotype of a South Asian family or whatever that is. Um, but there's, you know, me and my two younger sisters. And our favorite thing to do was be WWF characters. I was Hulk Hogan. <laughs> the youngest was Stone Cold Steve Austin. The middle one didn't like violence, so she was a, a ref or an usher or whatever. The, the guy in the back just kind of being like, yeah, you got it. We broke so much furniture in our parents' house because we would jump from the wardrobe um, off onto the pillow, not to mention um, <laughs> thankful that we drank gallons of milk because none of us broke bones ever. Knock on wood. But... You know, I never saw that. Like, the most I would see was, like, Rainbow Bright, maybe. Or, you know, I don't know, like, the random girl in uh, Captain Planet or something. I never watched Power Rangers. I guess maybe they were effective in some sense. Penny. Penny was one of my favorite characters from Inspector Gadget. Um, But so it was through books that I really found characters that I really identified with and thought like you know that's the type of woman I want to be that's the type of um, woman who portrays me and my voice Um, so in my version of Aladdin there probably would be no men which might be boring so there would be no like you know heteronormative kind of relationship or you know kind of what is it romance type of thing because I also hate romance I hate kissing there should be no kissing in movies or tv (laughs) I think it's pointless and useless and I'm just not a fan I I still to this day cover up my face my partner laughs at me and tries to make me watch rom-coms but I'm like where's the blood where's the gore where's the guts where's the glory (laughs) so um but yeah so that's my version of Aladdin wow <laughs> I thought about this. I struggled with this question. Um, if I was going to retell Aladdin, it would be cool if, you know, it would be cool if there was sort of the story of the magic and the genie and the tricking and the stuff. Like, could there's two ways you could play this story. One is like 
like just let Aladdin and the genie and the wizard like battle it out and like a woman doesn't have to be at the center of the intrigue and manipulation that'd be cool like just y'all do your thing and maybe it would feel like a lot less complicated if I didn't also have to like think about again as a as a young girl like how the story is about me in that way right um there's another way to tell the story which drops drops the men drops the romance drops the intrigue and is like i would i would be so interested to see a story about a young woman who unclear why you can see her cleavage she's not really sure how she feels about it because like half the time she's like told that she's not supposed to be seen or think of desires outside of what is planned for her and at the same time like she's someone has clothed her in ways that are like about her body being like there for other people I think that would really resonate with me trying to grow up in a country that um can't make up its mind about like whether whether girls are supposed to have bodies or not have bodies and and I'm talking about the United States, you know. Um, I think that would have been interesting. I remember, you know, being, like, very confused by her cleavage as and embarrassed. I was like, I don't understand. I, and I don't know. Nobody, nobody really explores in these kinds of films, like, the actual, like, body horror of it all. <laughs> but I think that that would be something I might watch if they were, like, the princess is growing up and she really doesn't understand why everybody is making a big deal about her turning 18. Mm-hmm. Right. And as a Middle Eastern woman, especially in the United States, you're either expected to be totally covered up or you look like Jasmine. There's mm-hmm. no in between. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like whatever you choose, again, it's like assumed that it's about your culture. Right. That you are like you're Mm -hmm. either responding to or you're acting within or you're going against. And it's like you don't have the choice to just be doing what you want to be doing or be grappling with what you're grappling with. And well, I should use I statements. But for me, there was a lot of like difficulty to even talk about this stuff with people because I was so used to being misinterpreted or like people might sympathize with me through the lens of you're from a culture that's where like that actually wasn't the main source of it of course like family and relatives they're all part of it but I'm growing up in the United States and I'm dealing with these things and my 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 complication is not really about like I need to rebel against my culture but if anything like I was told so many things about who my culture was and what it was and what it would do to me that um well this is kind of going off on a tangent but Zunera We've never really talked about it, but both of us are married to white men. Mm-hmm. And I will say both of us are married to white men who are really fascinated with cultures not their own. And I wonder what that's about. And I wonder why I feel like it's super common among folks that we know um, mm-hmm. that like a, like a like a brown daughter of immigrants ends up with a white guy because, and I'm, maybe I'm just projecting here, but... I growing up was like, no, I don't want to marry a Lebanese guy because that's what my parents would want. And they all are backwards and sexist and definitely, definitely did not have the real like range of empirical data to say that it was it was told to me. 
you know, and I have like thoughts now about if I had unlearned that stuff earlier, Mm -hmm. what, what might my partnerships be like? I don't know. I actually don't. That's so funny that you bring that up. I pretty much laugh every day about the fact that I'm one married, married to a white man, a white man with blonde hair and blue eyes who is from New Hampshire. So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that plays into it, but I also just, I just always never wanted to get married. Like, I thought that was such a weird idea that you're partnered with somebody. I grew up with sisters. Boys are disgusting and smell, and I just didn't want any part of them. Penises are terrifying, um, especially when, you know, you're not taught about sex at home and you're not taught about other body parts. Um, It was quite alarming to see my first one. I didn't know what to think of it. Um, so I thought it was like a frog or a snake or I was like, why does it move on its own? Like there is no body part on my body that moves on its own. Like that is insane. How do you control this thing? And I was like, if I had a body part that moved on its own, I would constantly be moving that thing because that is amazing. So men are weird to me. End of story. So, you know, like, you know, even though I grew up as a Muslim and a South Asian, you know, I had a lot of different relationships. But most of all, at the end of the day, I always said I was going to be in a house with cats and I'm happy with that. And my parents kept being like, are you sure you want this? Pushing back. And so I was kind of a surprise when, when I met my partner because I didn't expect to be partnered in that sense and I did still live out my dream of being a cat lady because he's a cat man and we have entirely too many cats in our house they outnumber us it's terrifying but I do I do question you know it's just why are so many young daughters or you know quote-unquote brown girls marrying white men it's 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 something I kind of grapple especially because my partner really really knows more about the history of my people than than I do and he can read or and write in several languages of, of South Asia like Farsi, Dari, Urdu, Hindi. I can't. And so it's like I'm constantly confronted with this this idea that I'm not South Asian enough. I'm not Pakistani enough sometimes. And it's not from him. It's just something that's coming internally from me. Um And I don't know. Yeah, I've never had that conversation. I think I'm just uncomfortable with it all. Mostly, again, like I said, because I'm married. I'm married to a man. When my friends found out it was a white dude with blonde hair and blue eyes, they were like, wait, what? No, it's this other guy in this picture, right? And I was like, no, (laughs) it's it's this one. So, you know, it's kind of comes as a surprise, but you never know, right? Like, that's, I guess that's the beauty of of being in a quote-unquote interracial relationship is you know, that whole, like, love sees, um, or crosses boundaries, right? So, I don't know, though. Just like in Aladdin. <laughs> if the princess, I don't even remember. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, was crossing class, class boundaries, I guess. Yeah, I feel like this could be its, like, whole, this could be its own conversation. And actually, I think, like, when, if we roll the tape back, I'll be like, I don't know about this. <laughs> But I believed, and I have, you know, another good friend is dating an Iranian woman, and she says the same things, and I am like, is it is it true? Is it true that, like, men in our family's countries cannot be feminist, right? Mm-hmm. I don't actually think that's true, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I grew up thinking 
like believing what is basically like an American imperialist myth that America's progressive and going to liberate the women and and we we can't be we can't be liberated women in the modern era if we were to marry within our own culture without even having realized where I got that from I carried it for a super long time so I didn't even try I just want to add in addition to that I think for me it's more I didn't want to marry in my culture because like I said I knew all those boys um but also there is a strong mama boy mentality so you know these guys grow up they don't know how to even do their laundry I don't think they know how to wipe their ass so it's like you know they they grow up being enabled so much and I would see that constantly with my friends who had brothers or just again most of the guys in my community my even my own cousins usually um, you know they didn't know how to make a bed they weren't expected to pick up even their dishes you know, they eat dinner and it's like, no, the girls in the family are going to go get it. And this is this is not my entire family. It depends, you know, which cousin's house. I'm, my dad's one of 13. My mom's one of eight. So there's a lot of variety. But it was just like, why would I like want to take care of a man child? Like, why would I want to take care of a baby? Like, I, I, I have enough of my own problems and I have to take care of my own stuff. So I that was my main reasoning for really not wanting to Mary, that and the fact that I hate cooking. I was like, so I told my mom and my dad, I will not marry anyone unless they know how to cook. Because I love food, but I hate making it. And so luckily my partner knows how to cook. And I think that's basically what it is. <laughs> right. So I think, I think, again, to go back to this idea of making the next Aladdin or another Aladdin in the present, look, you have so much material to work with. Let's let's talk about the problems we're actually dealing with, you know, and it's not always about an arranged marriage. And some of us don't like to cook. So let's have, you know, an Aladdin story where we're actually grappling with real problem in the present, real problems in the present, I think. Um, and these sort of identity politics issues as a result of being, you know, to immigrant families in the United States who have to contend with these other versions of Aladdin that are out there. I think, yeah, you have so much to work with. So much interesting, so many interesting stories going on here. So I want to thank you all so much for your time. Yes. My God, like y'all oh giving God. us so much. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you. So much. I feel like this is like the best you know, it's like the the winding country road. Like, yeah. you just never know where you're going to end up. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was such a great experiment for us. This is us taking the leadership from one previous guest, and we're using it to self-correct mm-hmm. and seeing as how it impacts the next um, story. So, or the next episode of our podcast. Um, thank you all so much. If... Yeah, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> there's so much here and I have all of the words and no words. So what I'm going to say is, is <laughs> we are going to end it yeah. uh, by asking you what we ask everyone. Um, how can people get in contact with you if you are looking to be gotten in contact with? If you are looking to be found, how could people found. find you? Correct. Great. Thanks, Shannon. <laughs> This is Rula Abisamra, and you can reach me at K 
Kangarula, K-A-N-G-A-R-O-U-L-A, on Instagram or Twitter. Hi, this is Zunera. Uh, you can reach me on Instagram through my Kitties of Hotlanta account, which, you know, is all my amazing fur babes and all their beautiful modeling, meowdling shots. But I do respond to it, for sure. Hi, this is Reem Beluni, and you can reach me on Twitter. R-E-E-M-B-A-I-L-O-N-Y is the spelling of my name. All right, so this is another episode down. Once again, I am Wanda Swan. I'm Shannon Palma. And you have been listening to Once Upon a Patriarchy. Patriarchy.